Amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you leading us to sing together this morning. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. We come to a close soon, next week, Lord willing, in this book. Today we want to focus our attention on verses 8 through 11, but to do that I want to back up uh, and begin in verse 1 and remind us of what's going on in chapter 3. So Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll pick up there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to a young pastor by the name of Titus. He writes these words. Verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But... But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then for our primary focus today, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factuous man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us to read your word together, to sing together, to pray together, to give together, and to now sit under the preaching of your word together. We pray that your word would do its work in us how we need to hear from you today Lord may you captivate our hearts and our minds for your glory we pray this in Jesus name amen well I am a grandfather I know that shocks some of you but I am in fact I've got pictures to prove it I'm not sure that I've ever met a parent or a grandparent that has not been quick to show off their family pictures. We've all been in those family photos where you're trying to get the perfect shot at just the right time and you're gathering everybody together and if your kids are anything like my kids, when you say photo, all of a sudden the frowns emerge and it's like photos and, and you're, you're gathering everybody in one spot and, and whoever's taking the pictures waiting for that perfect moment and, and as a dad or even as a mom you're saying okay everybody smile let them know you're excited for this picture uh, Johnny stop it Sally 
quit it. And then all of a sudden, everybody smiled now. And you capture it, and it's that wonderful picture. But sometimes there's those pictures that get taken, and it's the picture before the good picture, and people are swatting and pulling and grabbing. Not quite to that extent, but Kath and I got to meet our grandson for the first time yesterday. We went over to meet him. He, as you guys know, he's been in the NICU, and so we finally got over to meet him. And so we've got a 16-month-old granddaughter and a brand-new grandson. And so we want to get the picture of, of Gramps and Grandma with the two grandkids. And so we have our 16-month-old granddaughter holding her. I've got our grandson. And right before we get the great, glorious, wonderful, smiling picture with our granddaughter and our new baby grandson, our granddaughter's grabbing at his mitts. You know, those things that you keep on his hand so he doesn't scratch himself? She's grabbing at him, and she has this mischievous look on her face like, I'm about to get up in his grill. And, you know, she's grabbing it, and she's looking. So we get a picture of that, and we get a picture of the actual good shot that we wanted. We all love family photos. We all love getting that perfect picture of our families. Well, that's essentially what Paul is doing as he writes this letter to Titus. He's wanting to capture a picture, a portrait of a healthy family, of a healthy family church and so he spends these three chapters these short three chapters fleshing out for a young pastor what is it that a healthy church family should look like what is the portrait that we're after if you'll remember just quickly as you look at chapter one Paul's like okay uh, what we need to understand is that this thing called church this thing called family begins with God saving us that's where he starts in chapter 1. Then he quickly runs into chapter 1 about the importance of, of the church being structured properly and having right leadership. And he talks about elders toward the, the middle of chapter 1 through the rest of chapter 1. How they're to lead the church and teach the church and guard the church. And then, then he runs into chapter 2 and he talks about relationships within the church. How that should look in a family. The older and younger and men and women and what kind of relationships we should have have with one another and then in chapter 3 he talks about godly living particularly in society in general at the start of chapter 3 and then as he works his way down to chapter 3 he begins to remind us again that at the end of the day all of this is because of God's doing his work of grace in us so he reviews the gospel in chapter 3 and then we come to the verses that we're focusing on and he talks about how this gospel's to be lived out and how this gospel confronts and corrects us when we're in error. Ultimately, I think what Paul is saying to Titus is this, we're to be distinct. We're to be different. When the world sees us, when the world hears us, they're to see people that live such different lives that people scratch their head and they go, there's something different, there's something unique, there's something distinct about those people. In fact, we could say that this church is called to be distinct. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, as we look across the landscape of churches, are the churches that we're familiar with, both individually and corporately, are they distinct? Well, we could answer that question, we might have thoughts about that question, but the more important question is this. Is our church distinct? Individually, but corporately.
because the church is made up of individuals that come together collectively to live out this gospel. The call of God is clear. We're called to be distinct in our individual lives, in our families, in our church. So what does that look like? Well, in review, as we look at chapter 3, just real quickly to review, our distinctness ought to be evident to the world. So as a review from what Zach did last week, just remind us in verses 1 and 2, he talks about how we're to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and ready for every good work. We're not to malign other people. We're to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. In other words, he says our distinctness ought to be evident to the people in authority. So as we live out our lives in this society, it ought to be evident even to those in authority that we're distinct, that we're different to people in civil authority. We're to be obedient in general. We're to follow rules and laws, not because that earns us God's favor, but because we want to contribute to society in a healthy way. He says we're to be ready for every good work, every good deed. In other words, in summary, it's, it's the idea that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. We're to be salt and light. Good deeds, living them out so that God is glorified by our actions. But he also says that our distinctness ought to be evident to people in general. He says we shouldn't malign other people. We shouldn't blaspheme or, or insult or slander other people with the words that we use. Now, he's speaking at this point kind of externally in society in general. Certainly that applies within our church. But even outside of these walls, he says we're not to insult or malign people or slander other people. We have to be distinct with our words. We have to be peaceable. We have to be peacemakers. In other words, we're not looking for disputes. We're not looking for quarrels. We're not always wanting to find a fight. In fact, we're trying to, to avoid those. We want to be gentle, patient, and mild toward others. Yielding and courteous toward others. Showing every consideration for all men. In other words, Paul just kind of summarizes this for Titus and he says, we ought to walk in humility. If anybody ought to be humble, it's the people of God. When we understand what uh, God has done for us in Christ, it ought to lead us to live humble lives, he's saying. So is it evident? Is it evident to your co-workers that you're distinct, that you're different is it evident to your spouse that something, something has transformed your life? Is it evident to your kids that you're not, you're not normal? And say, well, they know I'm not normal. But, but are you distinct, right? Are you, are you so different that they realize that something's up? He's not the way he used to be. She's not reacting the way she once reacted. Something is transforming that person's life. There's a second thing in verses 3 through 8, very quickly as a review. Our distinctness comes by God's doing. All that we're going to focus on in just a minute is, is wrapped up in this understanding. The reason that you and I can be distinct is because of what God has done in us. This is all of God, not anything of us. He says in verse 3, remember your past. Now, now think about this for a minute. He's not describing somebody else. That's what we often do when we come to Scripture. We want to think of somebody else. 
boy, whoo, the word's really getting so-and-so today. Or, man, when this passage is read, we think of somebody that we, our neighbor, our coworker, a family member, a friend, maybe even, heaven forbid, somebody in this room or somebody in this room. But we think, Paul is saying, this was us. This was me. Verse 3, for we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What Paul is wanting Titus to remind the church on the island of Crete is who they once were apart from Christ. You were foolish. You did what the world did. You were unable to govern your own lusts. You were unintelligent in how you lived, is what Paul is saying. You were disobedient. In other words, you were stubborn. We don't have to be taught to be stubborn. We don't have to be taught to be disobedient. It comes natural to us. Just look at our own kids, grandkids. It's born in us. He says we were deceived. We were misled. We were enslaved. We served our own passions and our own lusts and our own desires. We weren't serving God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We served ourselves. We lived for ourselves. Here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel breaks all of these enslavements. He says we were spending our life in malice, wickedness, ill will toward others. We had envy. We were dissatisfied with our own positions and our own possessions and our own power. And we wanted what someone else, at, someone else had. He said we were hateful. You ever, you ever snap at someone? You say, yeah, this morning. Maybe you did. Maybe we all have to a degree. He said we were hateful. And we were hating one another. Verse 4. But God. Brothers and sisters, God broke into your rebellion. God broke into your deceit. God broke into your lusts and your own pleasures. God broke into your disobedience. God broke into your malice and envy and enslavement. God stepped in when you could not do what you needed to do. God did for you. And he reminds us of the grace of God. When, when as, as theologians describe it, total depravity overtook us, God stepped in. Author Jerry Bridges said it this way. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That's when his kindness showed up according to verse 4. His generosity, his love for mankind appeared. It shone forth. God's kindness and love shined in the midst of our sin like a laser beam. Like the sun piercing the darkness. His light shone in our hearts and it appeared in our lives. And what we once did not want anything to do with God and his gospel through Jesus. The Bible says God showed up. He appeared. 
and his love for mankind came. He saved us. He delivered us from our life of sin. How? Verse 5 tells us how. He saved us. How is it that we're made right with God? How is it that a person becomes a Christian? How is it that we are viewed right before God? It's not based on our doing, Paul says. It's nothing that we did, not based on our deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The only way any of us is made right with God, the only way anyone becomes a Christian is all of God. Every bit of it. By the washing of regeneration, this gives us a picture of of God's cleansing, of washing over us. This word regeneration is just the idea of being born again, being born new, being made completely new. That's why Jesus, when he met Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you must be what? You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be regenerated. Your heart must be made new. You don't need a restart. You don't need a kickstart. You need to be made new. That's the gospel, my friend. He says it's by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. All of this is is affected. All of this is applied to our lives through the work of God's Spirit that supernaturally works in us in ways that we can't see. But he's working to do this in us. In fact, in verse 6, it it tells us that the Spirit of God is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that we are justified, verse 7, justified by his grace. In other words, we are declared right with God by the grace of God. It's not what you've done, it's not who you are, it's not where you're from. My friend, if any of us get to God, it's only by God bringing us to himself. God does this. That's the good news. This is who you were, and in Christ this is who you can be. The word justified means to be declared right with God. How is that possible? It's all by grace. Grace is not what you earn. It's not what you deserve. It is a gift. Declared righteous in God's sight. And God as our judge declares us right before himself. Because of his son. And what his son does for us. In his death in his burial and his resurrection. That's why verse 7 he says, according to the hope of eternal life. You you receive the greatest gift you could ever receive. Life forever with God. So how do we respond to this? This is where we pick up today. Verse 8, how do we respond to this? We respond in obedience. Our distinctness comes by God's doing. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian today, if you follow Jesus Christ, my friend, it's not because you decided to turn over a new leaf. It's not because January 1 rolled around and you had a new resolution. No, you've probably broke every one that you've had since January 1st already. It's all God's doing. So how do we respond? This is a trustworthy statement, verse 8. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. 
what does he mean this is a trustworthy statement? Paul uses this expression uh, several times in the New Testament. It obviously is referring most immediately to verses 4 through 7. This description of the gospel, of the good news, of who we were, what Christ did for us, and because of that, how we're justified, made right with him. So this is a trustworthy statement. He says, I want you to talk about the saving grace of God confidently and regularly. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. My friend, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you will run to Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and your life will be changed. I can share that confidently and I can share that boldly with you. Not on my authority, but on the authority of God's word as he's given it to us here in Titus chapter 3. Then he says, those who have believed God. Faith in the saving grace of God leads to living for the glory of God. If we are going to live the lives that Paul is describing in Titus, if we're going to be distinct, if our lives are going to live out the reality of the gospel, then Paul says we have to believe this God and his message. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Because of what God has done for us, he says be careful to live it out. In other words, pay close attention to your life. Not that our good works save us, they don't. But our good works give testimony that God does in fact save. That he changes, that he transforms. He uses the word engage here. That we would engage in good deeds. In other words, practice continually. Our lives would seek to live out this gospel in an ongoing basis. Good works are the natural overflow of what God has done in us. It's a life devoted to God. It's distinctness. Don't be one who wants the benefits of salvation without a life that lives out this salvation. My friend, if that is us, I'm afraid what we desire in benefit will not come to us in the end. Because this salvation is not a life insurance policy. It's a transformation of the life now and the life to come. It's not that I want this now so I can get something later. No, I desire this now because I want to live a life Of good works. I want to live a life that shows the world that Christ indeed has changed me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, forgiveness without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. That's why John Newton once said these words, I I am not what I ought to be. Can you resonate with that? I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be, but still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. As a Christian, we are what we are by God's doing, not ours. John Wesley was a popular evangelist in early America and often rode 
from one church to another preaching the gospel. On one such journey, he was stopped by a robber. And the man shouted, halt your money or your life. So he got off his horse, he emptied his pockets and only had a few coins in his pockets and even told the perpetrator that he could search his bags, which only contained his books. The thief, walking away disgusted that he only was able to take from John Wesley a small amount, stopped when John Wesley said, stop, I've got something else for you. (laughs) Now, have you ever done that? If you've ever been robbed and the robber's walking away and you say, stop, I found something else. Here, you didn't get everything. He, He stopped, he turned around, and he said, one day you might regret this life that you're living. And he said, I want you to hear these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all our sin. The robber lowered his head and he walked off. John Wesley rode off to his next stop to preach the gospel. It was some time later, years later, when he was preaching in a church. And after the evening service, a man walked up to him and said, I wanted to speak with John Wesley. He walked up to him. And John Wesley recognized him as the man that had indeed robbed him some time back. But yet, it was clear things were different. And he said, I just wanted to let you know, sir, that the gospel has changed my life. He was now a businessman, and now living his life for the gospel. And he said to John Wesley, as he grabbed his hand and he began to kiss his hand in affection and thanks, he said these words to John Wesley, to you, dear sir, I owe it all. To which John Wesley replied, nay, nay, my friend, not to me, but to the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all our sin. You see, my brothers and sisters, your distinctness is not by your doing. It's all, all of God. But now we turn our attention to verse 9, where he says, our distinctness separates us from worldliness Our distinctness separates us from worldliness. In verse 9, he talks about uh, avoiding foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they're unprofitable and worthless. He says, first of all, we're to avoid troublers. Paul says that there's correct theological teaching and then there's false theological teaching. He tells Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, I want elders to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. But now Paul is saying there comes a time when you need to avoid and reject. Four errors to avoid. Avoid is the idea of turning around to avoid. Uh, I, uh, avoid gives the idea that uh, you, you see the, the person causing these errors and you turn your back on them, avoiding them. You say, well, man, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Well, just stay with what Paul is saying here. and Let's see what he says. Four errors to avoid. The first is this, foolish controversies. Foolish is where we get our English word for moron. You can't make this stuff up. Moronic debates, foolishness. Some things God simply does not want us to know. And to assume that we do is simply speculation. It's simply foolish. 
Yet these people try to draw lines where Scripture isn't clear. Where Scripture speaks, beloved, we should speak unapologetically, with grace, but unapologetically. Otherwise, we should allow room for differences. Often people are sucked into the foolish controversies and find themselves sinning against other believers by the way they speak about them or to them. These people come with conviction that appears to be right, but in the end, Paul says it's foolish controversies. Then he talks about another error, genealogies. Speculating about the origins and descents of certain persons, which some would assume have some kind of religious significance. I think for our purposes this morning, the point Paul is making to Titus is this. Sometimes people try to come up with bizarre connections, in this case through genealogies. Don't look for a conspiracy. Don't be the person that's always looking around the corner for some kind of connection that's out there in bizarre land. Because if you got it in bizarre land, it probably needs to stay in bizarre land. He says, don't fall for it. And then he, he mentions a third error, strife. This is the idea of quarrels. Some people just live for drama. Can I just, be, can I just shoot straight? Some people just live for drama. These people are divisive. They're conceited. They assume that they know more than they actually know. And they want you to know what they know. Because they read a book. They got it on the, the internet. They think they have it all figured out and nobody else does. Friends, be very, very cautious if you think you've got it all figured out and nobody else does. After 2,000 years of Christianity, you're probably not the only one that's got it figured out. He says avoid strife. If you're one of those, please hear me in love. Stop it. Just stop it. If you know one of these, tell them to stop it. Then he says there's another error, disputes about the law. Battling over the law, which Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, that they know nothing about. Assuming we have the beeline on the truth. You see, these people believe they know the word, is what Paul is telling Titus, and actually they don't. Here's the reality. Most of the time, when this happens, people know just enough to be dangerous. What does he tell them to do? Avoid such people because they're useless and fruitless. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one that's feeling a little uncomfortable at this point. But this is the word of God, friends. We have to deal with it. And Paul, in this first century church... On the island of Crete, when you would think 
It's one of the new churches. Surely there's purity of doctrine and purity of life. And these issues aren't evident in the first century. Oh, no, no, no. They were evident really fast. And if we think that they're not evident then, and they can't be evident now, then we're just flat foolish. The reality is this, it happened then, it happens now, and he says we should avoid such people. Now, he gives some stipulations about that in the next verse. Now, uh, Paul is following patterns that we see in other places, whether that be in Matthew 18, as we'll look at, uh, look at in a moment, or it could be uh, uh, other passages where he deals with this in 1 Corinthians, for example. So it's not just this, this uh, void, hey, you, you deal with it, and, and there's no context. No, there's context, and there's a proper way to handle it. But here, Paul says, you, you avoid people that are into foolish controversies, genealogy, strife, and disputes about the law. Then he takes it another step and he says, we're to reject troublers. So avoid troublers. Now he says reject troublers in verse 10 and 11. Now here's the reality. Patience is needed. Praise God for his patience in my life, on my life. Because Lord knows that I sin against him daily and need his patience. So therefore, I I do think there's a call for patience from us generally as we look at Scripture. But he says, reject a factuous man after a first and second warning. While the person in view could certainly be intimately connected to verse 9, I think he gets a little bit more broader in verse 10. Not just those that are trying to teach things but just flat out trying to be divisive. Generally speaking, we're to reject anyone whose life brings division in the church. Now hear me, friends. I didn't say this. Paul said it to Titus. Those who attack the unity of the church are to be dealt with seriously, Paul tells Titus. Right doctrine and right living go hand in hand in the church. We really can't have one without the other. We are distinct in what we believe and how we're to live our lives. The church is to give genuine evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in what we believe and how we live. By your testimony, being a member of this church, you are saying not only do we affirm what this church believes, we affirm how this church calls us to live. And we're all attesting to that and saying, we are on board. He says, reject this person. This word reject, it means to remove. It means to dismiss. This is hard. But he says, reject after a first and second warning. After admonition, after warning this person who is causing division, however that division is coming... Warn this person, urge him or her to turn from their error and to reclaim the truth and right behavior. Friends, church discipline is biblical and it is right. When we think of discipline, most of us think negatively. We think, oh man, when my daddy disciplined me, man, it hurt. Boy, you better go up in that room, I'll be right there. And you remember that. I mean, you break out in cold sweat. I remember dad saying to me as a kid, son, just go on in your room. Now, whoever came up with this phrase, now, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't know why they came up with that. It's just not true until I became a parent. Until I became a parent and I understood that. 
Because it hurts when you discipline your kids. You say, oh, yeah? No, it does. Really bad. But we always think negatively. But there's really kind of, as we think of Scripture, Mark Dever does a great job of helping us understand this. There's really kind of two streams when we think of discipline. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. Formative discipline is the stake in the ground that helps the tree to grow straight. It's the training wheels on the bicycle. And some of you need to thank the Lord that somebody invented training wheels and a helmet. You say, well, I never grew up wearing a helmet when I rode my bike. But it's, it's there to protect you. It's there to guide you. It's there to keep you straight. It's, it's the, the bumper rails at the bowling alley to keep the ball from going in the gutter. That's formative discipline. It's what we do when we gather on Sunday morning. It's what we do in our small groups. It's forming our lives around the word of God. That's formative. But what we often think of and what Paul's getting at here is corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. Let me suggest to us three areas that need corrective discipline in the life of a church. Number one, fidelity of doctrine. Fidelity of doctrine. Here's an example. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. In other words, Paul tells the Galatians that one way in which we are to guard the church and if necessary enact a form of discipline is when doctrine goes error. When when it goes off the rails, if you will. Errant, if you will. When it falls by the wayside, we are to call the church to purity of doctrine. And when false teaching is propagated, is, is sent out, we have to correct it. A second way in which we call for corrective discipline, it's purity of life. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. What scripture is very clear about is this. Those who confess Christ as Lord must live lives demonstrating that he is in fact Lord. And when that is not the case, the church steps in in those instances. So fidelity of doctrine, purity of life. And the third area, unity of fellowship. Unity of fellowship. Here's one example we've just read, Titus 3. 10. I'm reading this time out of the ESV. Some of you are like, "Ah." as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and is self-condemned. So why should we do this? Why should we guard doctrine? Why should we guard the way we live? And why should we guard unity within this body? Before I answer that, let me say this. That doesn't mean we can't ever question or ask questions. What it does mean is this. We should never stir up without going to the source of our concern. 
See, what happens so often is we have these concerns and we say things outside of going to the people that they originate with or that they involve. And what that does, and the only thing that does is it causes division. It causes strife. It causes problems within the body. And so Paul says this. Why does he say it? Because he says these people are perverted. They've turned aside. They've turned aside from the word of God. And then he says they're sinning. This is written in the ongoing, the continual idea. They continue in these false views and they ignore the admonition from others. And then he says they're self-condemned. They've proven their guilt by their own actions and their own words. Some will say, well, isn't this all too negative? Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. This same Jesus also said in Matthew 18, what we read earlier. That if your brother or sister sins, go and show him or her in private. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they don't, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if they don't listen to you, then tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, you treat them as if they are a Gentile or a tax collector. Doug, what does that mean? Well, he gives us a way in which we deal with conflict and issues within the church. One-on-one. Private conversations. They should stay private. They shouldn't go beyond that conversation. The elders don't need to know. Others don't need to know. If there's something between believers, they need to take care of it themselves. And if they don't listen, Jesus says, then you take one or two with you so that by two or three witnesses, everything that's said can be confirmed. And then if they don't listen to those witnesses and that admonition, those two areas, I would argue, are to be done privately. Nobody else needs to be pulled in. But if they ignore that and if they continue in the sin, Jesus says they actually are to be told to the church so that the church can admonish them. If they don't listen to the church, we must assume that the gospel has not transformed their heart. And that should break our hearts. You see, the reality is that our Christianity, our godliness, is meant to separate us from the world by what we believe and how we live. We are, in fact, called to be distinct. What kind of witness is the church giving Christ if it allows false teaching and ungodly living to go unchecked? Does our belief and our life distinguish us from the world? Here's a question for us. What's at stake? I would say this. An accurate display of the gospel to a watching world. If the world's view of the gospel comes through our lives in what we believe and in how we live, we dare not, we dare not give them an inaccurate picture. Paul is trying to take a picture of what a healthy church should look like. As you scroll your phone and you look through all your pictures, sometimes you pause and you smile and you grin and you laugh but you reminisce on, that's, that's my family. And you're grateful for that. And what Paul is doing for Titus, what he's doing for us, is he's, he's taking a snapshot for us of what the church should look like. 
Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. But the reality is this. Our lives in what we believe and how we live is to give an accurate display of the gospel. And Paul says to Titus, let us dare not. Let us dare not give an inaccurate picture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word challenges us and, and at times we, we feel uncomfortable because we're guilty. I'm guilty. And yet I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy and your patience. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that no matter, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're from, we're not outside of your reach of forgiveness and grace. So I pray for those here today that might not know Christ, that maybe are here and maybe they've heard this message over and over and yet the gospel has never pierced their hearts. But even right now, oh God, would you open their eyes that they would cry out for your salvation and for your forgiveness, for you to change them, for you to make them new. Lord, many in this room are followers of you and, and yet God, we find ourselves from time to time tripped up by our own sins. We find ourselves becoming a bit calloused and, and jaded. So God, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would soften our hearts. And Lord, where maybe confession needs to take place among believers, where conversations need to take place, maybe even within this church or people in our own families or co-workers or friends or neighbors. Lord, help us to have the gospel courage to have those conversations and admit where we've sinned and yet be reminded that your grace, your grace is always, always available as we cry out to you for it. Help us to be a people that show grace and show forgiveness just as his as has been done for us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.